There is a familiar statement that has been attributed to President Theodore Roosevelt. Maybe you've heard it. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Let me tell you the story about a woman named Greta. Greta was from Germany and she had her PhD in immunology. She called herself an agnostic. She had a friendly spirit and an open heart for spiritual truth in a way, but let me qualify that statement a bit. Greta was open to argue about the Christian faith, but she herself did not believe a word of it. God, if there was a God, played absolutely no part in her thinking. The Bible to her was an ancient book filled with nice stories. She couldn't understand why anyone would take the Bible seriously. A good book, yes, but the Word of God, that simply didn't make sense to her. To make matters worse, her fiancé was the only educated Christian she knew. No one else in her circle of friends talked about their faith the way he did. Either they didn't have any faith or they managed to keep it well hidden. So how do you reach a person like Greta? Greta and her fiancé were deeply in love and wanted to be married in the church, but that presented a problem. Since the church they were attending at that time had a rule that they, could, they would not perform a ceremony involving a believer and a non-believer because they believed the Apostle Paul talked about that kind of unequal yoke in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So as the months passed, the crisis grew greater. And at one point, their pastor told Greta, we love you, but we can't, you can't get married in this church. Now, about that same time, Erwin Lutzer, who was for many years the senior pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, wrote a little book, and the book was called How You Can Be Sure You Will Spend Eternity with God. And one day when the pastor mentioned that book in his message to the congregation, Greta said, hmm, Lutzer, what a good German name. I need to buy that book. A few weeks later, the pastor met Greta and her fiance in the lobby after the service, and he impulsively that day put his arms around both of them, and he looked at Greta, and he said, by the end of June, I believe that you will be a Christian. And much to his surprise, the response back from her was, I hope you're right. Now let me leave that story for a few moments and tell you what I believe is one of the secrets to success for any church. Most people I know who come into the church for the first time can recognize very quickly whether the congregation is warm and welcoming. If the language of love is spoken, it will be recognized. If on the other hand, the atmosphere is toxic, if there's conflict, if there's lack of hospitality, if people are friendly only to those they know with inside the church, if they're judgmental, a non-believer will sense that also. Even a new person who is a Christ follower is probably not gonna stay where the culture of a church does not include hope and grace and love. Speaking the language of love ought to be the heart and soul of every congregation, but love has many faces, some soft, some stern. Love doesn't mean the same thing to every person every time. 
But this much is true. Love must be present for any church to prosper. That's the meaning of the saying. No one is going to care how much you know till they know how much you care. In our text today, the Apostle Paul explains what love looks like in the outworking of human relationships. Sometimes, he says, love is like a mother. In verses 7 through 9 of chapter 2, he says, love is like a mother. It's soft, it's gentle, it's kind, it's hardworking. And sometimes, love is like a father. In verses 10 through 12, it's challenging, it's encouraging, it's setting a good example. So I want to look at each of those images in a little bit more detail. Look at verse 7. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had the right, Paul says, to make some demands of you, but instead, instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. Here, he, the scripture gives us a lovely picture of perhaps a young mother nursing her newborn. See how carefully she wraps him in her arms. She lifts him to her. She knows that this little one cannot eat on his own. Can't find food. He can't survive without her. She must not only feed him, but the food must come from her own body. To nourish him, she must give of herself. The milk he drinks is her milk drawn from her own body. Now hold that thought for a moment. To be an apostle in the first century was an awesome responsibility. In the beginning, it meant that you had actually seen Jesus personally. You had been trained by Jesus. Our Lord had chosen his followers and given them the authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to teach the word of God. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church itself is built on that foundation the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They were mighty stones on which Christ would build his church. It's no exaggeration to say that after Jesus returned to heaven, the apostles were the most powerful spiritual leaders on earth. They had power and authority that God had given to no one else. So when Paul says, we certainly had a right to make some demands on you, he meant that quite literally. When an apostle spoke as a representative of the Lord, his word was to be taken seriously. His directives were to be obeyed as long as they were in line with what the Lord himself had taught. But Paul says, instead, instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her children. Now this is a great image that goes against the grain of our mental picture perhaps of the Apostle Paul. Of all the words that we might use to describe him, somehow the word gentle doesn't come to mind. Strong, yes. Determined, yes. Zealous, yes. Impassioned, yes. But gentle? Nonetheless, there it is. Gentleness is not a quality often respected even today, is it? We tend to value tough, strong, assertive leaders, and none of us likes to be bullied. We don't always respect gentleness. However, the quality of gentleness is a mark of a true Christ follower. I think many men especially would not feel complimented if someone called them gentle. 
And yet Jesus used that very word to describe himself in Matthew 11. He said, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now it seems to me that if Jesus felt comfortable calling himself gentle, we shouldn't have a problem with it. After all, Jesus was not a pushover. That same Jesus who embraced children also took a whip and cleaned out the temple. Say what you will about him, but people didn't call him a sissy. You know, when he confronted sin, he was gentle like a tornado. But when the moment called for it, he could be kind and tender and forgiving. See, gentleness is not a weakness. It is our power under God's control. It's the ability to give, our, to give of ourselves to help the hurting while at the same time confronting evil whenever necessary. And that's a tough combination, because our, but our Lord pulled it off uh, without a hitch. Notice verse 8. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. I really like this verse. I've often thought it takes more than the gospel to bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Not that the gospel can't do that, but there's a companion piece. It takes the gospel plus us. People will listen to our message only when they know that we care about them. There is this much needed, this is a much needed word, I think, in, in today's world, um, because we emphasize, we tend to emphasize power and programs and position and prestige, and people want a ministry title. They want public recognition. Um, there are very few who work quietly behind the scenes with no thought of reward. And when I read verse 8, I always think of Tony Bennett singing, I left my heart in San Francisco. You know, the Apostle Paul could have said much the same uh, kind of thing. I left my heart in Thessalonica. I know that doesn't kind of fit, does it? It doesn't rhyme or anything. But it really tells you about Paul's passion for these believers in Thessalonica. He gave everything, including his heart. See, ministry that changes the world costs us something. It costs us everything we have. If we want to make a difference in people's lives and in the world around us, we've got to do more than just share the gospel. We've got to lay down our own life. We've got to give our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've got to give something that we'll never get back, our very life, for the sake of Christ. Look at verse 9. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. I think every parent knows how difficult it can be to take care of a young child. You never get enough sleep. You're always tired. No matter where you go, you never fully relax because you're always watching, listening to make sure that child is okay. And that's how Paul felt about these Thessalonians. He exerted all of his energy to ensure that their spiritual needs were going to be cared for. Now, you may not know this, but Paul was a tent maker by trade. Everywhere he went, he found part-time work making tents. That meant he worked during part of the day, preached uh, the rest of the time. That one fact tells us that despite his very high level of education, Paul wasn't afraid of manual labor. He wasn't embarrassed to get his hands dirty. 
He did it so as not to be a burden to the churches and so that no one could ever accuse him of being in this for the money. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he makes it very clear in that passage that he doesn't consider it wrong for a person to live off the preaching of the gospel. And in 1 Timothy 5, he says that an elder who both rules and teaches is worthy of double honor, which presumes that elders would in fact be paid for their work. But he himself apparently worked in secular jobs wherever he went so that he could be free of any accusation about his motives in preaching the gospel. And then in the last three verses of this passage, Paul changes the image from a mother to a father. And he points out four ways in which he was like a father to these uh, new believers. First, he said, as a father, we need to set a good example. Verse 10, you yourselves are our witness, witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all the believers. The word devout speaks of his life in the sight of God. The word honest, his life in the sight of all the people. And the word faultless as a result of being devout and honest. He means to say that no one could make an accusation against him that would stick. Years later, Paul uses the phrase, the phrase above reproach in 1 Timothy to describe the quality of life demanded of a leader in the local church. The Greek word describes a garment without folds, and when applied to our personal character, it means that a leader must be free of any secret or pockets, hidden pockets of sin. Said another way, it means that a godly leader is one whose life is such that there's no, that no detractor can grab hold of it and accuse them of anything. The Living Bible uses the phrase, a good person whose life cannot be spoken against. Another translation says, one with whom no fault can be found. It means that no charge could be brought against such a person um, that would withstand impartial examination. We know that leaders are often attacked, their motives questioned, their actions criticized, and while such things do happen, a leader who is truly above reproach will weather the storm because there's nothing about that person that someone could say, aha, I gotcha. This means no, no questionable contact, uh, or conduct, no secret sins, no deliberate, deliberately unresolved conflicts. But then secondly, Paul says, as a father, we comforted you. Verse 11, and you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Another translation actually goes on to describe that treatment in terms of giving comfort to a child. And the cotton patch version of the New Testament says that Paul was constantly sharing his insights. Reminds me of the little book that I read years ago called The One Minute Manager. Maybe you've read it. Encourages bosses to catch your employees doing something right. <laughs> Most bosses are excellent at finding fault. The truly great ones love to catch their employees doing something right. Paul was like a spiritual cheerleader who thrilled over every spiritual victory and consoled these new believers when they were feeling defeated. You know, good fathers know how to do that. They know how to cheer their kids on to victory. My own father was a quiet man most of his, the time, but I still remember him finding those moments when he would affirm uh, what one of us boys were doing. And those words of encouragement were a simple gesture that has stayed with me across all the years of my life. But then thirdly, Paul says, we, were, we, we need to be encouragers. 
The first half of verse 12 says, we pleaded with you and encouraged you. The word encouraged means to come alongside someone who's struggling to help them out. It has the idea of seeing a runner who's about to stumble as they round the last turn and head toward the finish line. And instead of simply letting them fall and finishing the race on your own, you slow down, you put your arms around them and you carry them to the finish line, even if it means losing the race yourself. It has the idea of putting aside our own comfort for the good of others. And then finally, Paul says uh, that we are to, uh, that, that we challenged you. The ha- second half of verse 12, we urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy for he has called you to share his kingdom and his glory. See, the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to live a life worthy of God. In my early years here at Redeemer, I remember one father who often told me that when his children or grandchildren left the nest, even for a date or for an event at school, a place where they would be away from mom and dad's supervision, he would remind them to remember who they were. He would remind them of their heritage, of the values of their family. And in like manner, we must be careful not to embarrass our God. God has called us to a glorious destiny. We have the promise of spending eternity with him, paid for by the blood of Christ. So we need to live up to that high calling, how important it is to let every word we say, every action we take, the things that we do, the things that even we refuse to do, all reflect well on God. When I was a child, I heard it over and over again. Oh, you're Bob's son. Now that meant something in the town where I grew up, but as an adult, I understand that as a child of God, we have an even larger responsibility to live in a way that we enhance God's reputation in the world. Now the last part of verse 12 brings us before us the privilege and the challenge of working for Christ. We're privileged to be part of God's kingdom as it unfolds here on earth. More than that, we, dis- we will discover in the days to come just how great that really is when Jesus comes back to this earth to overthrow all the human kingdoms and to establish his kingdom forever. And what, whatever little glory we have, we have seen now will pale by comparison with the glory that will be revealed in those days. But our great challenge in our time is to live worthy of that high calling. We're called to be kingdom people, living in a foreign land. We are called to represent the king himself in a world that sought it best to crucify him. In his long absence from this earth, we are called to stand in his place and take care of his interest and spread his word and invite others to join the cause. That's a high and noble calling. How important it is for us to live in such a way that no one will ever be surprised to discover who it is that we represent by our life. Now, if you're looking for just a simple statement that applies to everything the Apostle Paul has said to us today, here it is. Who we are is more important than what we say or what we do. Who we are is more important than anything we can say or do. And that raises one final question. What does it cost to live this kind of life, to have this kind of ministry in the world today? And the answer is, it can cost us everything. Let me go back and tell you the end of the story about Greta. 
Greta and her fiance were co-workers. She soon realized that he was a pretty nice guy. In fact, a really nice guy, and that was about it at the time. And then one evening at one of their scientific conferences, he pulled her away from the crowd and he sat her down and he asked her, do you believe in God? And she said, of course not. And that's where their journey began. A few days after the conference was over, he gave Greta his phone number and asked her to call him whenever she might feel like it. And being the bold person she was, she took him at his word and called a few days later, much to his surprise. And they talked for a while and they decided to have dinner together and he invited her over to his place and he served her a wonderful home-cooked meal. It was a perfect first date. He said grace before the meal, which was very unusual for her because nobody in her family ever prayed. She found it a little peculiar, but went along with it. And after the first date, they discovered they had a lot of things in common. They loved nature and travel and good food and good conversation, but there was just one thing that kept them apart. He had Jesus in his life, and she didn't. And he kept reminding her uh, of that and, and, and lovingly and gently and tried to share the gospel with her, and she listened sometimes, and then she forgot about it later, and it was over a period of time that she realized, you know, it, it was just not convenient to have to respond and be accountable to a higher power. But she realized that this man was strong and he was sincere in, her, in his faith and that there was just no way she was ever going to escape this as they connected with each other and they could not avoid the topic. Over the months, they became closer and he kept reminding her that, you know, part of what it meant to know Jesus was to believe in Jesus and if she wanted to be saved from her sins and to know the promise of eternal life and by gently sharing the good news with her, he slowly began to dismantle brick by brick the wall that she had built around her heart and made her more susceptible to what he had to say about faith and about God and of course, the deconstruction of the wall did not always go smoothly. It rumbled and rolled at times, and many of their conversations about God and the Bible ended up in, in a fight. But with his enormous amount of grace and patience and love, God always enabled them to kind of come back together. And finally, they decided to get married. He was still reluctant a bit because he knew she was um, not at the same place in her faith as he was uh, or that he had hoped for. So he continued to just encourage her, and she was at that point where she wanted to become a Christian. She just didn't know how to do that. The concept was not clear to her that she could just ask Jesus into her life and ask for his forgiveness, and that would begin a personal relationship with God. And one night while driving home from work, she heard a very clear voice in her head saying, Greta, God is calling you. She didn't know whether it was her own voice or someone else's, but she went home that night and she picked up Pastor Lutzer's little book and finished it, and at the end of the book was a prayer of commitment. And it was a little prayer that she decided to try. So she read the prayer, and then she read it again, and then she put the prayer in her own words the next evening, for no other reason than to chat, a friend from church called her, and Greta told her what she had done. And the friend said, wow, Greta, now you're a Christian. Hold it, Greta said. That seems a little easy, doesn't it? You just wait and see, the friend said. 
Her fiance didn't know any of this was happening. He was out of town on business. But the very last chapter in her story, Greta says, began when the pastor told them that he would not marry them in the church. She was angry about that at the time, so angry that she went home that day and cried. But as time passed, when the tears dried, she gave in to the prompting of God's spirit. And she decided for God, for good. And she says that she will always be grateful to that pastor who shook her out of her lazy behavior and made her do something about her faith. But in thinking about Greta's story, two final comments come to mind. First, there are no hopeless cases with God. For some people, it may take months, it may take years to break down those walls of unbelief. But God can reach down and God can reach the outcasts. He can reach the high and mighty. He can reach any of us. And when God hears the cry of our heart, he saves us. Greta's story ought to give us confidence to keep on praying and keep on sharing Christ with others in our life that we're concerned about, that we're praying for, that we would like to see come to know God. And God will honor those prayers. And secondly, there is no power on earth greater than the power of love. It was God's grace and her fiance's love that won Greta to Jesus Christ. She couldn't explain the difference in his life, nor could she withstand the persistent love that he had for her. But God used the love of that young man to bring Greta into God's family. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Greta is living proof of that statement. She's also a living testimony to the power of God to change lives, even today. And she's not alone. There are millions of people just like her who are ready to listen if they know we care about them, if they know we love them, and we will be faithful to share the good news. Let's pray. Loving God, you are the giver of every useful and beautiful gift. You have made us shareholders in your spirit and investors in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So encourage us to speak and act and pray so that all we hold in trust may be used more wisely and more lovingly. Help us to continue to be agents of love and grace and hope in the lives of those around us that we're praying for, that we that still yet need to know Jesus Christ. God, we give you thanks that you can touch every heart in every life beyond our wildest dreams and imagination. Help us to be faithful to be your hands and your feet and your voice as we continue to reach out to the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.